Let me pray before I read. Jesus, you are the King, and you are our King. You're the one who uh, knows uh, what we need to hear and speaks the truth to us. Would we hear from you this evening, and would we obey you and and listen to you? Amen. Reading from verse 33, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again you have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one head white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. I'm going to pause it there, and the children are going to go to their groups. And we've uh, read and we've prayed. I don't know how you feel about this, but at some point you've got to accept... You're going to start to behave like your dad. Okay? You're going to start to behave like your dad. It just happens. Uh, So my dad plays the bass guitar and listens to rock music. And I play the drums. And my eldest sister, well, she travels all over the place going to see bands like the Foo Fighters and Muse in concert. How how did that happen? Um, and you probably, yeah, exactly. You've probably seen that Eddie has caught the bug, um, fueled on by Faramaz. Uh, so there was a small, miniature, kid, toddler sized drum kit in our house. But to give you another example, which might be a helpful one for today, football teams. Um, so my wife Hannah is an Everton supporter, and her dad is. In, in Liverpool, there's only two teams, really, Liverpool or Everton, and you've got to pick a, si- you've got to pick a side, okay? Um, you can't sit on the fence, you've got to pick a side. Uh, and she- Hannah's got the kids. Um, and when I need, this is my confession, when I need something to wear for my five-a-side football, sometimes I borrow Hannah's kids. I shove on her footy gear, it fits me, which is great. Um, and when I go to football, something interesting happens. Everyone starts to ask me, about the latest match, or transfer, or the manager, 
and, well, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> because just throwing on some kits, it doesn't make me an Everton supporter. And actually, it doesn't make me part of Hannah's family. It doesn't make me a Williams. And we've been reading this part of Matthew, and we've been hearing the description of God's children beginning to look like their heavenly father. So they're starting to look like their dad. And what we mustn't do and mustn't think is that by throwing on this kit of what Jesus is saying uh, about living his way, that that makes us family. It, it doesn't, any more than the kit makes me an evidence supporter. We can't, it's not that way around, is it? Um, this is showing how those who have already been made God's children, well, they start to look like him. So you see that way around. It's more like Hannah. She's already in the family than it is me just thinking I can look like a supporter. And that's why Jesus in this section refers to God their father so much. So it's there in verse 45. Verse 45 says, So that you may, will be sons of your father in heaven. And this is not saying do this to become a child. It's saying this is how it looks to be sons of your father. And in the bit that follows. And it's there in the very last verse too, which is really the summary of this whole section. It says, you therefore must be perfect as, as your heavenly father is perfect. So it's about a father and it's about those who have been brought into his family. And the access into the family, is already, we've already heard, is those who recognise that they're not friends with God and that they need his mercy. But it's worth letting the impossible nature of that command, that verse 48, sink in just a little bit. Because that's the summary here. <laughs> Be perfect, like your father is perfect. It's unashamed, isn't it? And actually, God's commands are there to show us that we, we're not there yet. Um, and they floor us to see we will never do them on our own strength. When we see our helplessness to live these commands, well, that's the key to obedience. Because then we long for God's help and we seek him. So, seeing our helplessness is actually the key to obedience. Now, that sounds weird, doesn't it? So I say it again. Seeing our helplessness to live these commands is the key to obeying them. Because it moves us from our own efforts to seek God and his spirit at work in us. And then when we see ourselves as law-breaking, can we come to God in the first place? Um, so let's look at the first command um, in our passage today. It's there in verse 33. And it's your first point on your sheet, which is, God is true to his word. Have you ever heard someone say, you might have been walking down the street, you, might, you just overheard a conversation, I swear by my mum's life. Or I swear on my nan's grave. Yeah? Okay. Yeah? People say that, don't they? So actually... Uh, you'll know how this game works in verses 33 to 38. Uh, 38. And the game works like this. The more sacred the object or person is to you that you're swearing by, the more authentic or truthful you sound. That's why my mum's grave is it's pretty serious. Yeah? But me swearing by my hair gel <laughs> is not going to convince anyone. Okay? It's not going to convince anyone. And if you look down at the list in verse 34 and 35, the, I the items might have changed, 
but the idea has it. Uh, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, so that's the first one, uh, earth, in verse 35, Jerusalem, and even in 36, there's the, uh, the hair on your head. So those were the things they were swearing by. A bit different, maybe, but same thing. The original command there was in verse 33, as we said, and it's, the command was, do, you shall not swear falsely. But there's an addition, isn't there? But you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And that's actually what people thought the command entailed. So just perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And so if I'm more authentic when I use the most sacred thing to me, in the mind of the Jew, the most sacred one is God. And so um, any promise mentioning him was seen as binding You've got to keep that promise. That's, legal. That's legally binding. But you see the game. If I mention God-related things, like heaven, or earth, or the holy city, I haven't mentioned God's name. But I sound authentic. And so this is what was going on. People were saying uh, they were using these God-related terms to swear and make a note, make a promise. And they thought, great, job done. Uh, I can strike the deal that I want, but I'm not going to get sued if I don't come through. Come good. They thought, Scott free, we're, we're, we're fine. Well, not quite. Because Jesus doesn't calls out their hypocrisy, doesn't he? He calls, out, he calls it out as hypocrisy because it's trying to claim on their terms that well, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm, you know, I'm not breaking that command. And before we start looking at the Pharisees and thinking they're doing that, well, we do that, don't we? Because we say, oh, it was only a white lie, or you know, I didn't just tell them part of the truth, or you know, I didn't promise them that I was going to be there. I just kind of suggested that I would. And so we do the same thing. Uh, it's great, actually, that Jesus calls this out as hypocrisy, because actually, if unchecked, hypocrisy is the fast-track way to a nasty surprise on the day of God's judgment. Because it's thinking we're, we're good and we're, we're law-abiding on God's terms when we're not. As the lawgiver, well, what's God concerned with in this, in this command? What do you think he might be concerned with? What do you think God might be concerned with when he says you, you shall not swear falsely? Truth. <laughs> uh, from the back row. Truth. He's concerned with truth. People being true to their words. And actually, when we think about God, that's, that's exactly who he is. So as the lawgiver, he is true to his word. And really, that's the foot in the door of relationship with God. Because if he's not true to his word... And we can't believe what he says or take any of it as read. We can't be in relationship with him. It starts with God being true to his word. And so that's why it's important to him. And that's why all deceit is deserving of the maximum penalty of hell. Separation from God. That might be shocking, but that's what we need to hear. So God being true to his word is the start of a relationship with him. It's great. 
And then we start to think, okay, well, Jesus is saying what God's children will start to look like. And he's saying that they will start to look like their Heavenly Father. And they will start to speak the truth. So actually, they won't need these grand promises or these things to swear by. Because in verse 37, it's, he expect, you know, the expectation, you can just say yes or no. Um, because like your Heavenly Father, people can trust what you say. So that's, um, that's what Jesus is saying the command is about. And uh, I think this will be particularly distinctive in Dagenham. Uh, you know why? Because we all want to make promises to people and we all say, yeah, I'd love to be there. But how many people actually expect you to turn up? I mean, they don't, do they? they sort of like, yeah, great. And when you turn up, they're like, what? You did what you said? You know, they're almost surprised. They've almost forgotten you ever said you were going to come. I think this will be particularly distinctive in a world where people are used to people ducking out their promises. So that's the first one. And we're going to look at the next two. And actually, they're pretty similar. So they they do seem to go together. Um, So we'll look at that under the next heading, which is, God is good to those who reject him. Sorry, I didn't put my pictures up. They're not, they're not that great. So. <laughs> In verses 38 to 48, let me read that. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who could borrow from you. You've heard that we said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Have you heard anyone say that before? Yeah. An eye for an eye? Uh, well, actually, this... this this command is pretty timeless in terms of what people interpret it to mean. Because you might, you probably heard people use it as, a, as an explanation for an act of revenge, perhaps physical violence. An eye for an eye, they had it coming, yeah? And actually, far from being that, that this was intended, this, was, this law was given as a limit. So people see it as a target, you know, an eye for an eye. It's got a balance. But there's actually a limit on what we could, on what was fair. When someone had taken something from someone else, well, you know, the, the, you know, the possibilities are endless of what the other person can do. So um, this was a limit. Because God knows that when we try to settle the score, so to speak, we get it badly wrong. So... You think about the, the loose comment or insult that goes on outside the nightclub. Well, it quickly results, doesn't it, in the person laying flat on their back. You know, the, the, the response is not proportionate. <laughs> we, we don't settle the score very well. And so that, that command, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is a, li- is a limit. Because God knows um, we get it badly wrong. Uh, and, and, and that was the law. Um, the command that they were thinking about. 
And God is concerned here, isn't he, for people to be treated fairly, even the one who's, acute, who's done the wrong. God is concerned for that, for, for that person to be treated fairly. And we read um, that verse, verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And it's quite, shock, quite striking, isn't it? Don't resist the one who's evil. And we could hear that and think, well, Jesus is ruling out all forms of intervention, like going to war or helping those who are oppressed. It can't really mean that, because it wouldn't fit in with all the, with the original command, would it, which is concerned with God's delight for justice. And actually, in the applications that Jesus gives, he gives us three applications. They're there on your sheets. Um, I've got giving you a little table again. Um, these are all concerned, aren't they, with the individual? So the, the case by case thing, the individual, and how they respond when they're treated unfairly, and the Christian when they respond when they're treated unfairly. Um, so the examples: if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, if anyone sues you, wants to sue you and take your tunic. If anyone forces you to go one mile. So these are individual and how the individual Christian responds. And Jesus said that they should be seen to be very different. And they could, couldn't they, under the eye for an eye, to justly demand what was taken from them, from the other person, that and no more. But Jesus said that, uh, says that actually... They are instead to extend grace and mercy to that person. And they're they're not actually simply to grin and bear it and hold their tongue. It's not doing nothing, but it's doing something. Uh, And it's striking to us because the, the kind of things it says are actually doing them good, isn't it? So we wouldn't usually expect to turn the other cheek. Perhaps it's been a situation where someone's caused you harm. And you put yourself in a situation where they could, they could well do that again. And maybe someone wanting to sue you and take your tunic. Well, the more expensive item is the cloak. So you're actually offering them something more than what they want to take from you. And the forcing to go one mile, uh, going two. That, you know, people, people can demand things, can't they? They say, can you do this or do this? And, and maybe, that's happened, maybe that happens at work. So someone says, someone puts a whole load of work on your plate and you say, gosh, you know, I wasn't, I'm not really meant to be doing this. And you're, you're a bit begrudging about it. Well, this is saying, it might not be your choice, but do something that will show them God's grace and show them his mercy. So these are the kind of things that he's talking about. Um, and actually the principle there is summarised in verse 42. So here we go. Sorry, have I got to this bit? Not yet. Great. Um, principle is summarised there in verse 42. It's giving to the one who begs from you and not refusing the one who will borrow from you. So this is quite general, really. It's like generosity to, to anyone. It's quite striking that, that Jesus would say, do this for anyone. Uh, well, the second part of this is loving your enemy. And that's the second part of Jesus 
showing that he does good even to those who reject him. And we see that in verses 44 to 48. It says this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do that? So, love your neighbour. That's the, that's the command at the top there. It's, it's been embellished a bit, hasn't it? Let's have a read. Verse 43. Love your neighbour and... <laughs> Come on. Love your neighbour and... Right, it's been embellished. Um, so, loving your neighbour, well, what does that mean? You know, it could just be the people that I like, or it could be my mates. And so, actually, if it means that, well, there's a lot of people I don't need to love. But in fact, all the other people, and particularly my enemies. Well, if I'm loving my friend, my mate, and I'm doing a good job of that, then it doesn't matter if I'm hating my enemy, does it? Well, that, that's what I think people are thinking, and that's what we do too. And here Jesus takes the scaled-down category of neighbour and he replaces it with his definition, which includes everyone. And with our minimum glasses on, remember we're doing the minimum-maximum thing, neighbour simply means, well, my kind of people. For the Jew, that meant Jews. And elsewhere, when Jesus is asked, who is my neighbour, do you remember when he was asked that? He responded with widening it with a story about the Samaritans who were despised by the Jews. When the man said, who is my neighbour? Jesus said, your enemy. Um, So, uh, love your enemy. Love your neighbour means loving your enemy. And we find it hard to do that, don't we? Does anyone find it hard to love your enemy? Um, it's, not, it's not what we would normally do. And then when we don't do it. Um, so we need to see... We need to see what God is like. And uh, in verse 45, the reason Jesus gives for loving your enemy and praying for those who persecute you, in verse 45 is being sons of a father who is in heaven. So... The motivation is to be like a father who is in heaven. It's a relationship. Um, and, and the father, well, what's he like in verse 45? Well, he sends rain, which, by the way, is a good thing. <laughs> you know, we tend to think of rain is the, the bad side of it. He sends bad stuff and he sends good stuff. It's, it, it's both good for people who are farming and need their crops to grow. Um, he sends rain and sun. And not just on some, but on who? On the evil and on the unjust. So if you want to know what God is like, he is one who does good, even to those who reject him. And we see that in in what he provides. And actually each day he's doing that, isn't he? He's providing what everyone needs, regardless of what they think about him. And what their hearts say about him. He's doing that. 
God does good, even to those who reject him. And actually, that's the experience, isn't it, of anyone who has experienced God's mercy. He's done good to his enemies. In fact, his enemies he has brought in and made his friends. He loves them enough to save them. That's the alternative, looking after your mate. But Jesus on the cross, he says this. He prays. And he prays for the very people who are persecuting him and putting him to death. So he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's what Jesus prays for for us. He loves those who are against him. And he loves them enough to save them. And so it follows, doesn't it, that those who have experienced God's love, faultingly, yes, but they will bear that same family trait. They will start to look like him. And you see in verse uh, 46 and 47, that actually anything less than that, Jesus says, well, it's it's not unique at all. There's nothing special about loving those who love you. Jesus says even tax collectors who were known for selfishly exhorting people of their money for personal gain, well, even they do that. And even Gentiles who had no interest in the God of the Bible, well, they greet their own kind. And I found these words particularly challenging because what it shows is how dangerous it is to assume we're saved with no concern for others to be saved. Jesus says, they can do it better than you can. They love their own. They greet their own. And actually, there is, they do the same. What more are you doing than others? And so Jesus gives us the challenge uh, to love those who are our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Uh, God's children are to be like him. And we don't often want to be, and we don't often do that, do we? But that means loving our enemies. Doing good to those who reject us, and praying for them, even when we don't feel like it. And this was one of the things that struck me, that I really struggle with love your enemy, because I don't feel love for my enemy. And so do my feelings, is that what Jesus is saying? Your feelings need to be there from the word go. I, th- I think he's actually saying, get your feelings to follow on. Because praying for those who persecute you, that's, got to, that's the first thing that changes your heart, isn't it? Because when you pray for someone, you can't hate them anymore. Um, and Jesus is saying, start there. Pray for those who persecute you. Your prayer might be, I pray that they would stop hurting me. You know, that's an honest prayer. But, but we go beyond that, don't we? And we say, I pray that they would experience God's mercy and his forgiveness. Um, that they too would be saved. So what can we learn from this? Um, well, if you're new to church, it's, it's great that you're here. And it might be that your assumption about God was this. 
He looks out for his own. Maybe that's what you thought. Uh, He's not so much the father who loves everyone and wants them to come to him, but he's more of a, like a vending machine. By that I mean he rewards those who are good and he withholds stuff from those who are bad. And that's a, that's a fair assumption because if you, if you haven't heard this part of the Bible, lots of people think that. But actually, can you see that the reality couldn't be more different from that? This is the God who does good even to those who reject him. And when we start to see that, we start to see he's gracious to do that. And, and if we start to see he's gracious, maybe he's the God who would be our father and invite us into his family. Even today, this very hour, he is giving gifts to those who want nothing to do with him. And that might include you. But the amazing grace is that he would show you your sin to reject him. And to give you what you don't deserve, which is his love. It would be good to admit you've got God wrong. And start to see him as he shows shows himself to be. See that he is your heavenly father too. Uh, Maybe if you take an honest look at your life. So that's the the different. Uh, Maybe if you take an honest look at your life. You see that actually you're stuck in verse 30. uh, uh, Verse 45. uh, Verse 46, sorry. And you honestly have to say that your love and good deeds, well, they're, they're for a select group of people. And they're for people you like. And actually, that might even be smiles on Sundays. But actually, there's no mercy for the per- next person who gets under your nose. You, you, want, you want them to, to pay for what they've done. That is a worrying sign, Jesus is saying. And actually, it's easy to happily hang around with Christians, but the glaring hole is that we have no desire for others to be saved. The work of God in us is a desire for those to be saved. The people we don't yet know, the people who we don't really feel like wanting to know. And the shock of what Jesus is saying here is you don't have to be a Christian to love your mates. You don't have to be a Christian to love your mates. Only people who have been brought to see that they deserved hell and received God's mercy will want others to experience that too. And if you're a Christian hearing this, um, well, your heart has probably been burning at the reminder that God extends grace to those who reject him because that's been your experience. And this call to love those who reject you seems impossible in your own strength. And that's the right way to feel. Because then we can pray for God's power to change us and be honest with him. Uh, And we can pray for them to experience the mercy of God we have been shown. Uh, There are actually two examples of this. I've seen really recent um, examples and it's worth looking them up on YouTube. I'm not saying everything they say or the situation is exactly um, going to be the same with everyone. Um, but I'm going to mention to you what they did say in, in terms of what they said to their, their um, abusers, what they said to those who had done them harm. And these are Christians, so this is what they said. Um, this is a former gymnast. Uh, her name's Rachel Den Hollander. 
and experienced sexual abuse from a young age uh, from her coach, along with hundreds of other girls. And she said this to him in the trial. She said, it's quite strong, but you've got to think he's, he's done this to everyone. He said, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Um, the other guy is this guy. Um, his name is Brant Jean. And his brother was shot dead uh, in his flat, um, in, his, in his brother's own flat. And he said this, he says to the woman who did that, he said, I want the best for you, because I know that's exactly what my brother would want you to do. And the best would be, give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that my brother would want you to do. Um, I thought I'd give you some examples because if you're anything like me, it's hard to imagine what that would look like. Um, and it, it seems like, yeah, loving your neighbour, that, that just doesn't happen. But actually, God's work in these people's lives um, speaks to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you took us from being your enemies, that you, your love for your enemies uh, was before we even uh, did all the things that uh, rejected you and turned from you. You set your love upon us uh, from the beginning of, um, from before the beginning of the world. And uh, thank you that your love will continue uh, to bring us to full relationship with you, to, to, to the enjoyment of that when we're with you in heaven. And Father, please change us to see that those who um, don't yet know you and uh, may have caused us harm and even those who we don't really care about if we're honest um, need to know of your goodness towards them I pray that they would be saved too Amen